I want to talk about a new paper which came out recently, which is titled, How Do Science Journalists Evaluate Psychology Research? This was led by Julia Bottasini. Um, it also includes an actual real science journalist in Christy Ashwanden and uh, also co-authored by Samin Vizier, uh, oh, former guest oh, of the show. real science journalist, uh, one, of, one of the best and most well-known science journalists. Yes, yeah, I'm sorry. A, a legitimate science journalist is, 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 is what I meant she, to say. She wrote, she wrote Good to Go. Um, yes, I have not read that, but I've heard good things about it. And you really should because it's excellence and a superb antidote to the horse fuckery that happens within athletic training, uh, the sort of popular conceptions of physiology and exercise as it bleeds into the public consciousness. And one of the probably, probably when it comes to the sort of expurgation of what does science say about things everyone cares about, definitely in my top 10. Um, not even just within with this within this area, just in general. If you wanted to okay. know about something like that, I would point you to that book in particular. Actually, um, as, as also the Gluten Lie by Alan Levinovitz um, would would ah, okay. very I've thought about, I've thought about very definitely that. go into the same. I think they're sort of you know cousins in this respect. Um. So yes, Dan, a real. <laughs> A real real talented journalist. Yes. In this particular study, they asked the question, what information do science journalists use when evaluating psychology journals? And this was a very interesting pre-registered experiment, and they manipulated four different factors when describing fictitious behavioral psychology studies. The first one was the study sample size. The second one was the representativeness of the study sample. So, was it just a bunch of rich kids from the northeast of America or was it more generalizable? The third one was the p-value associated with the finding. And the final one was the institutional prestige of the researcher who conducted the study. Before looking at this, James, what would you have thought would have made the biggest difference in um, how journalists did evaluate when they were- I did ask myself and- I I would have no strong preconception that I'd be willing to tell you. I I wouldn't. I I wouldn't know. I really I really wouldn't know. Um, okay. The reason for that is pretty is pretty simple, and it's an on reflection. Uh, I've seen such stochastic responses from the press of the world to different scientific studies um, with or without press releases. Sometimes something that feels like it should make sense to sing from the hilltops is not picked up. And sometimes things of absolutely no consequence whatsoever are, are broadly picked up and then everyone, every, all the sort of beat reporters are reporting on it. And I always presumed that this had something to do with the access to information that journalists have that we don't. So lists of press releases that are coming out, access to PR people, um, the presence or absence uh, as necessary of embargoes, like all this sort of information that's unknowable to us. I mean, it will or knowable only without a tremendous arsic for regular people. So I don't have a clue what would, would the, the, the factors that would drive this be. 
because they've always felt like they had a strong element of randomness for me. So at this point in time, you've got to tell everyone what they found. Well, I, I first want to tell you my intuition. Ooh, I would you've have got thought intuition to go I, with I your plaid shirt. Look at you! I have an intuition. Double pretty. I, He's double pretty today. Everyone go. I, oh, this thing. <laughs> go on. Go on. I I would have thought that institutional prestige would have played a role, not both in both both directly and indirectly. Indirectly, because the more prestigious the institution, the more they have access to these full time press officers who can sort of. Um, assist with writing these press releases uh, and now, get this now, out to the right Okay, people. now you're conflating two things, yes? Okay, you're conflating prestige the name with prestige the capacity, yeah? So, some counterpoints. I think that a lot of regular public universities, if they think they have something saleable, have a sufficient ability to access what they're putting out into the world and have uh, people find it to begin with. So I don't think you need to have a particularly butch press office that is out there ringing the bell. I mean, they, they know how to find you. And generally people okay. who are interested, I, I think that the sole determinant a lot of the time of even a basic level of interest is whether or not people give enough of a fuck to be able to do it for themselves. Um, it was very, I randomly wrote to North, years ago I wrote to Northeastern on a whim once the thing turned up as some press office thing and I just wrote back and went, oh, I've got this thing. And they go, oh, wow, God, God, they were interested, fallen over themselves and took photos of me and rubbed my, rubbed my belly what, and what was this? fed what me biscuits. Was this? Oh, I can't even <laughs> fucking remember, Dan. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but, but you, so, so you went to the, yeah, but you went to the press office and they helped you out. Yes, I did. And, you know, Northeastern is, one of those universities where people go, it's fine, you know, it's, I don't know, and some ranking probably in the top 100, I, I don't know, I don't even know, right? See, but it's certainly is, not like is, it's, it's one of the lesser known universities in Boston. Um. <laughs> but what, the thing is, this is melting my brain. I reckon there's probably more universities in Boston than, than the entire country of Norway. How many, you know, how many, how, how many, how many universities in Boston? Well, that's pretty easy. Um, Boston College, Boston University, uh, University of Massachusetts. We'll give them, we'll say that's here because it's, it's sort of close enough. Um, because obviously they have Amherst and uh, other places that are not in Boston, Boston, MIT, Harvard. And then there's smaller ones that people haven't heard of. Like, you basically like beaten Les, away already. Like <laughs> Leslie. Um, and then, of course, there is Northeastern. Um, so I think I've got six or seven. And there are yeah. others as well that I may not know about or may may not immediately come to mind. Those are all the very well. Oh, Tufts, what am I doing? Uh, yes, of course. So, sorry to all the Tufts listeners out there. No, 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 no. They're, no. they're, 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 they're throwing away their, their Patreon. This is, <laughs> this is so, that's so mean, Dan. I mean, I live, I live close enough to Tufts to walk there. I know a bunch of people, I know a bunch of people who work there. My, my neighbors study there. Like, I, it's, yeah, I told you I was going to have a senior moment before we started. And now here I am having a senior moment. And don't say, anyway. don't say, I forget you saying that, James, because then that means you're having a senior moment too. <laughs> Sorry, anyway, anyway, look, look, back it up, back it up, back it up. This is just, I'm at a regular university. Wrote to a press mm. office of a whatever reason. Um, I'm feeling uh, particularly, uh, particularly showbiz that day. And 
Right. And it all <laughs> just, mean? it all just, well, I don't know. Everybody look at me. Look at me. I'm amazing. Sure. I have a beard yeah. and fashionable glasses and a plaid shirt and I live in the frozen <laughs> fucking tundra. And then they, they heard that and they thought, oh, he seems worthwhile. Um, you should definitely spend years talking to him. Um, I think I may have switched topics there, but suffice, suffice to say, I don't think that they offer, but for really big budget stuff, I mean, sometimes you have press conferences and other like full spectrum releases and interviews and uh, things that are made available, like other materials that are made available to press offices. And there, sometimes there are people with the individual departments or areas who handle that stuff, but that's really only happening at the, the absolute top. So yeah. the problem with, I mean, it's something that you're made very aware of if you live here is that there is a tremendous distorting effect from all these places that you've heard of that are really stupid and fancy, yes? The thing is, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of perfectly great institutions that are not from the same, you know, they, 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 they don't occupy the same kind of air. I mean, even Brown, Brown is an Ivy League university. It's great. It's graduated tons of famous people. It's been around for ages and ages. But you wouldn't, you, you yourself would not go, ooh, Brown University. How incredibly fancy. It sounds brown. Um, <laughs> But I know it's an Ivy League. At least there's no grey university, but you know. Yeah, probably probably somewhere. Yes, but it's also at the same time, there's all these enormous public universities that are are just churning out research, just hosing out undergraduates with huge endowments and big silly football teams and shit like that, right? (laughs) So I I think that it's very difficult to expect people to take that really seriously past a certain level. I would imagine if you made me guess, and I'm not saying I I predicted this, I knew. I feel like I know sometimes. In this case, not really. But if you made me guess, I'd say that there would be an effect that would be combined to a tiny number of the super brand recognized universities Mm. and everyone else gets gets to go into the same bucket, you know? Like if there was Mm. some small experiment from Caltech, maybe you take it a little bit more seriously than the University of Michigan. And that would be your inherent bias because, you know, people think about Caltech all the time. It's justifiably famous because of all the people who came out of it. Obviously, it means a terrible example for a social science experiment. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But anyway, look, I I digress, Daniel. Prestige. and far from us to like, let's slide into a digression of exactly what we think of it. I think we can just accept the concept exists and continue to live our lives, can't we? Let's talk about what actually happened of okay. these four factors. Of of these he's, four he's factors, he's doing his serious voice. <laughs> sample size was the only factor that had a robust influence. Um, university prestige had no effect. Mm. And the effect of uh, p-values and sample representativeness were inconclusive. So it seems that uh, sample size, when they spoke to this um, uh, 181 journalist perception of these um, fictitious studies, that sample size actually made a difference. And these other things, um, proceed did not, and these other things were inconclusive. That's quite interesting because I wonder what sort of response you would have got if you hypothetically ran this study 20 years ago before sample size was a thing Ooh. um i did i did a, i did a that is I did a my good first question 
I did my first undergraduate lecture, James, this week. I've never lectured towards undergraduates. Really? I felt so incredibly old sitting in front of this this lecture theater of, of 200 youth of Norway. And I told them this story about how when I was in undergraduate psychology that we were told the magic number. How many N per cell, James, were we told? What was the magic number in, in social psychology or in psychology? I don't remember that the data collada guys have overwritten that for me with 30 and 50. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't. 30 per cell. Is it 30? Yeah. Per cell? So, so, some people even went down to 20 per cell. <laughs> Essentially, what the, the general vibe, the vibe of the thing, at least when we were an undergrad, okay. was it? When you, when, when you were, when you were planning your studies or when it came to interpreting studies, that if you had 30 per cell thumbs up, you were looking good. And that was the perception back then. But of course, we know, we know a lot better. Coincidentally, I think this has almost gone too far. Um, I saw a, a, a bioarchive preprint posted today, which basically said, hey, you all need to calm down, especially when it comes to repeated measurements of the same sample or psychophysics studies. Mm. You can't rely on sample size as a rule of thumb across every single research field. Well, so people have almost gone. Of course, of course you can't. Yeah, I know, but people do. People do. Like, do I've spoken to so many psychophysics people that are like, I, I can't get my papers reviewed because reviewers are like, N of five, get out of here. It's <laughs> N of, of course five my- with eighteen hundred internal measurements yeah, over yeah, three exactly. conditions. But people, but people, people don't consider this. So, look, all I have to say, but, is, is, sorry, it's, sorry, are we? Are, are you? Are you fucking serious right now? What is that? Is that actually happening to people in the? Oh my god. So it's a people they don't they don't understand the the difference between the sort of inherent reliability of a measurement and its representativeness. Of course they don't. Well, the, the, oh, these these group of why all the fucking shit that comes over my desk and things to worry <laughs> about are people being able to do this wrong. We're back there. Does every do, do, do people think the last eighty odd years of psychophysics was a fucking accident? Yeah, obviously people within the field know what is what, but this is when, um, you know, for better for, for better or for worse, the more prestigious journals are more generalist journals where you're speaking to a wide audience. Oh. So these things are harder. So th- these people felt the need. I'll post a link to the, to the, to the preprint of basically explaining, hey, some research fields do not need the, the sort of sample sizes yet. There is a crisis. You need sample sizes of like a million to, to, to make any solid inferences for GWAS or you need sample sizes of a couple of thousand to, to, to detect small effect sizes in social psychology. But yeah, but yeah. So look, all, all I'm it's trying to say is it's great. It's just a soup with the, the, the number of observations, the expected error structure, the desires <laughs> of the, all the regular fucking sh- It's just like 19-year-old shit. This is the stuff that you People should be telling this. your room of fresh-faced Norwegian undergraduates. Well, I, I assume that they're fresh-faced and not mountain trolls or similar. No, Shout out to any mountain real. trolls who might be in dance class. I give you full <laughs> permission to hit him with a club that I presume you have. <laughs> Hashtag they're stop all lovely trolls. James. Hate. Uh, they're all. I'm sure. I'm sure they. Are. I'm sure they're. They're remarkably pleasant, and they uh, will persist to be so when you have to do their marking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that is that is a sad indictment on. I mean, this has happened. To, this has happened to me. The physiology stuff as well. Like, let's say you're going to track a circadian rhythm. If you see an animal experiment where you track a circadian factor over time. You often have, during a day, binned five-minute measurements 
right? So you take all the measurements in five minutes and you, you put them in a bin. You get an average out of that. And that average is usually a very, very good representation of what's in the middle. Uh, it's almost never particularly different to a median. For a minute, some, some of the measures are not normally distributed, but they're not so non-normally distributed that you don't get things to behave the, the way they're supposed to, right? So I, there's one experiment with rabbits that sticks out in my head that's on circadian uh, rhythms that I can't. I can't remember where it is right now. So from memory, it was a two-week experiment, right? So we have how many five-minute bins in uh, how many five-minute bins in an hour, Dan? Twelve. So twenty-four times twelve is two hundred and eighty-eight, right? Two hundred and eighty-eight times fourteen is four thousand thirty-two, right? So for one individual rabbit, we have four thousand and thirty-two binned measurements over a single stream of time and every single one of those like if you had a, a sort of a, an expectation of exactly what happens with those things so it's basically sinusoidal but a lot of the time you get a uh, a post awakening response it's a little bit different to everything else um so you can uh it's 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 very it's very easy to it's very easy to model right you know how big the change should be so there's lots of different ways to do it now if you have one single rabbit Right, with four thousand measurements and an incredibly well expected model, incredibly like a physiologically constrained, very well understood basic phenomenon. I think there are people in the world who would go, "We can't infer anything about that because there's only one rabbit." Hmm. Did they not see all the little numbers? I mean, it's <sighs> rule following as a in general in academia drives me absolutely ballistic. Again and again and again in so many contexts. And you've given people the new rule. Well, this is the new rule of exactly how the numbers should be done. And it completely just lobotomizes them, removes their ability to think about things. And we should definitely put that psychophysics paper in the show notes and show our little nerd friends in their dark booths looking at grating that there is, there is actually in the rest of the world, presumably most people who listen to this are not in psychophysics because, you know, we're – we're all, we all had normal social lives. <laughs> no, look, I'm being, I'm being, I'm being flippant, but, um, that's bullshit and they shouldn't have to go through that. Um, yeah. but they are. It's, it's, well, and in- it's, in, it's insane that that's the case, right? It's insane that someone had to write that paper so they could all collectively refer to it to say, stop making this a problem. It's, I mean, it's just embarrassing. Um, it feels like we've done another digression, Daniel. But no, this fuck. this this is right. This is good, Go. but I think this is I think this is a this is a nice paper because it, as well as doing the actual experiment, it talks about the importance of science journalists. Um, and it's, I mean, again, this was a sample of U.S. U.S. science journalists, mm-hmm. so this may play a factor. But I guess it it in the introduction, it makes this nice. Um, comparison between science journalists as what they call perky cheerleaders for scientists <laughs> or science. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's true because quite a lot of science, not all, but some science journalism that you see is just going, hey, look at this cool study. Isn't science cool? Um, sometimes science is cool, but they were talking about how the importance of actually science journalists acting as science watchdogs mm. um, and, and, and actually evaluating, hey, this is good science or this science 
isn't so good. So it's nice to talk about that. It is, and I think we've we've recorded our um, I think we've recorded our uh, collective opinions on the uh, I love science, isn't it amazing? Here's a picture of a nebula crowd previously, Dan, and the sort of yeah. distaste for the discussion of science, the, the the discussion of scientific outcomes versus scientific processes in general. Um, hmm. You know, one is news, um, and the other is information. Um, they are not and should not be considered the same. But I think it's a little bit unfair. I mean, science journalists as kind of gatekeepers? I mean, I don't think scientists are good gatekeepers <laughs> as scientific knowledge. So I'm not quite sure how we – it feels a little bit unfair, you know? They're like, let's, let's, expect, let's expect the journalists to do that for us. Um, no, I mean, we well, literally, guess- there's literally no pipeline to, uh, to like the, the horseshit prevention mechanisms uh, of uh, borderline absent at a lot of journals. It's certainly absent within universities. And, and uh, <laughs> even if they're mandated, they're generally not uh, available within governments. And I'm not talking about fraud. I'm talking about just garden variety bollocks at this point in time so you know at the point in time where all of that is hoovered up and and, and sort of packed into the simplicity of a press release and sent to a science journalist you're supposed to go down you know you need to have the heuristic because you're the gatekeeper <laughs> you're all, the yeah of all the information that's come up so far i mean their job is to report a shit that people find interesting you know um, it, it's just, i can i can see how they get uh tripped up i mean Obviously, there's people who are still writing stories about all the great shit that Brian Wansick found, and I hate those people. They're hacks who can't Google. <laughs> um, and <laughs> but it, it's 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 a very long bow to draw. Um, I'm I'm glad in this sense. I mean, this is actually I think paints them in an extremely positive light, and the the fact that that a, a large sample size and. A difference now, I think our, our opinions on the promiscuous use of p-values are well understood at this point, Dan, but I was just reading the method while you were talking before, and I think mm. they chose a very interesting pair of comparisons for what is the difference between the two statistical thingamajigs. You've got the p-value, which could be high between 0.05 and 0.03, or low between 0.005 and 0.0001. Now, those are likely very different implied effect sizes. Yeah? There's no universe where some kind of alternative analysis that is of any reasonable equivalence will not determine that there is a substantial narrative to be pursued if you're talking about a p-value of 0.0001, right? That's just Mm. this shit is different and at some point we could stop arguing about it, which is probably how the psychophysicists feel when they they have a 900 within subject observations, you know, Um, with an effect size of two and a half or some shit. but you know, God forbid. Not a typo. God forbid they didn't. Uh, they didn't bring more of their friends uh, into into the dark booth. Just one, one at, more friend. Just, yeah, to stare at the grating. Just stare at the grating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I did. I do. I do remember a, a, a 
a, a lost opportunity for a joke when there were people sitting in a little booth way back in the day at uh, at university of men men who stare at grates. When there were, there were three of them, I remember looking at all oh, they're looking at like Gabor things, trying to program an experiment at the same point in time. And I had that thought in the sort of years since, and thought that was a, the one of the best opportunities <laughs> for a pun that I've never made and come up come up with far too late. Most people do that. Like, like there's always podcast they, episode titles. They, people walk out of the room and they think, "Oh, I should have said that shit." In the meantime, I hardly ever have that, but I have these moments where, like five <laughs> years ago, an image will pop into my head, and I'll thought, "Why didn't I do that?" That would have was the movie. That, that would Was the movie even even out at that time? Well, sorry the the movie of the the men who stare at goats is it based on a book? Have I have, have yeah. I just have I just told have I just exposed my ignorance? No, no, it was a fi- the film was like well over a decade ago. Right. Okay. So and it was, it was it was based on uh it was based on a book by fuck uh John Ronson. Um and that was that probably came out during my masters. Uh it's one of those ones I didn't okay. read so at the time that. and eventually got round to and it's it's very very funny. I mean I'm an enormous fan of John Ronson. Um so I eventually got round to it. Uh, it's it's fucking it's fucking funny, like it's it's really crazy. Uh, the military, like like many other uh, endeavors of human life, when you've just got slightly too much money at some point in time, and the, the people who are involved are slightly too unhinged, will occasionally come up with something that's so deeply weird out of context um, that it's just you have to look back at it in a historical context and go, that is amazing that that happened, you know. It's like it's it's like the Mayan sacrifice of military spending. It's like I cannot believe your culture led you there. That is so intense. <laughs> um, sorry, Dan, I did it again. <laughs> no, it's okay. Men, men, men who men who stare at greats. Men who stare at greats. Ah, there you go. Um, so this is look. I think this is a. I think that this is a really interesting approach to be able to do something like this um because you're not talking about your typical this is not a typical social science paper in 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 many respects uh, and i'm not just talking about the fact that it was obviously honestly pre-registered um which is interesting it's more it is a typical the, paper if if you're going to study things that are around these phenomena, I think you it's not typical because I think they actually went to the effort of trying to engage with a, a, a different culture that's around science. Yeah? I don't think that happens enough, you know? You remember the original sort of sociologists of science from the 70s who actually go in and do it? They hung out do? in labs. I, I think- Have you read the, um, the Latour book, um, Laboratory Life? Oh, such a long time ago, but yes. Very good. It's a very interesting book, and a, and you read it, and you're like, man, nothing has changed. Uh, the technology has changed, but you read it, and you're like, wow. Highly yeah, recommend. We have so many, life. so Bruno many. Lu- Bruno Latour. Bruno, Bruno Latour. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was 
shit uh a long a long time ago yeah your memory of it is obviously better than mine i uh, just thinking it now we have we have so many we have so many faster uh, like more computationally efficient ways to delude ourselves now <laughs> yeah marvelous click of a button yeah absolutely um, yeah but this was interesting because this is the sort of research question you could i wouldn't be surprised if someone did this with and asked other scientists how they evaluate the credibility of other papers you know it's like okay interesting but yeah okay not 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 something that you would not expect but to ask science journalists now i want to ask funders what do funders think what sort of thing that the people who are actually ultimately making the decisions that would be an interesting question how much do i i like that but 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 but. okay so funders are not individual people making decisions there are a variety of different ways that they do something like that and it may be a panel of people who are drawn from the it may the the broader research area it may be internal it may be according to a remit that someone else has written that then everyone else has to follow um it may be to some other mark of quality um it may be it may be almost a foregone conclusion honestly because you start you want to do work of a, a certain you you want to find certain things um uh, sometimes only a very select amount of people can actually do those things you know it could be uh, it could be very challenging so i don't know if those are individual people who can make the 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 decisions on the accuracy of what you want um and every single one of them is i i like meeting more of them, I, I find them deeply idiosyncratic. Like they change a lot from place to place. Um, I think maybe if you wanted to, if you wanted to just just change that slightly, just people who were NIH grant reviewers, yeah, that'd be that'd be a fun way to do it. Um, just people from certain study sections and find out exactly what they think is uh, particularly worthwhile. I wonder if the the prestige question would start to hit a little bit better then, huh? I, I, I think it definitely would. Making, I, I think it definitely making would. them more biased than science journalists, which is funny. <laughs> he said yeah. seriously. Um, this was, yeah, this is a very interesting paper. It is. I, 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 love, I love some of the quotes. Is the research? Yeah, is the, this was great. Is the researcher adamant that this study of forty college kids is representative? If so, that's Good a question. That's a red flag. Oh, golf clap, Dan. Golf clap. Yeah, golf that clap. was a good one. Golf clap. Try not to bang the I, microphone doing a golf clap. <laughs> I like some of these are revealing in that they're they're almost a, a little bit. Some of the questions actually say some of the, some of the journalists are like, well. I use peer review as a marker, but I know peer review isn't a guarantee of quality, whereas others are like, well, this is, this is one of the things that I look to the most. One direct quote is, I don't have training to do forensics on papers. Not many people mm, do. Yeah. So, so to stay out of trouble, I make sure the finding is passed through peer review for a reputable journal and assume the reviewers would have picked up anything egregious. Um, yeah. I mean, like this, I, I'm not, this is the, 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 the sort of thing that, I'm not surprised that some science journalists think of um, looking at p-values, 
um, how significant was the outcome. I look at whether it's a very small p-value. Um, I, I do look at p-values even though I know these can be massaged. So <laughs> this is really this is really eye-opening, and I think we need more of this mixture of qualitative responses and quantitative responses because it just it gives a little bit more context about behind the actual responses and we sort of see these things as as either or um i think it's been really interesting we're, we're, we're doing like an open science committee at a local department and we work very closely with the qualitative folks and just it's a different world and it's great and they're doing heaps of different stuff and it's things that i just never considered so hearing how these different research perspectives are done is is quite eye-opening so to see this this qualitative perspective of getting these direct quotes is 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 really cool on how they actually decide on how they how they evaluate these the, the, these papers. So that there's various subcategories that you can uh, that you can read through yourself. Um, and it was also cool because I actually asked them, did, could you guess the manipulation that we did? And not not many did. Of course, some picked it up, but um, yeah, it, this was a this this was a cool feature. So I really. Uh, listeners, go and check out Table 2 because you can see these selected examples of things mm. in these open-ended questions. And if there's, a, if there's a good one to close on, there's a quote here that I love. Some of the studies were frivolous, like who would even care? <laughs> 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 oh, dear. Straight to the heart. Straight to the, straight to the already weakened heart of the social sciences. <laughs> Oh, it's just a, a knife through the ribs of an already <laughs> failing chest. Oh dear, bless oh. you, anonymous journalist person. That this- that is uh, just 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 the sort of millennial cant combined with the very <laughs> obvious observation of that is. I, I think it's, it's it's a little bit of poetry right there. Great way to end it. Thank, uh, congrats to to, to Julia Bodasini. And, and, and co-authors on this, this very interesting paper. Uh, it'll be posted on the, uh, on the show notes so you can check yeah, it out for yourself. Also post the- I haven't done a paper episode for a while. I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad we did this one. Um, this, this was, uh, it's nice. One. It, it's, it's, it's nice that something that fits within the sort of general rubric of a traditional social science kind of study is capable of being done in a way where neither of us have an aneurysm and feel like that it's actually <laughs> saying something that is really interesting and meaningful mm. it's it's, yeah. it's it's still possible i mean things come in for a lot of criticism here dan i've Always said what would happen if uh, one of your papers showed up to me for peer review. I respect you far too much to let you off easy. I, <laughs> Good. Would, uh, I uh, would kick it to death. Red, you will. Red marker everywhere. You will get to know. Yep. You haven't collaborated with me for a while, but I bet you miss the highlights in the comments. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Well, well done. Well done, everyone involved. And, uh, and fuck prestige. <laughs> <laughs> Great way to end it. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with some more Everything Hurts very, very soon. Bye-bye. Bye.